so we're going to look at Matthew 21 this week. So the, the, what's called the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is actually captured by each of the four gospel accounts. Um, and we're going to look at Matthew's account in chapter 21. So Bonnie read that passage just a few minutes ago. <clears throat> so you might want to turn back there. And um, you'll see the, the uh, points on the outline on the screen behind you, or you can pull it up from our web page as well, the live stream page, or if you want a hard copy, you can run out to the lobby if you didn't grab one on the way in, if that's helpful. So the first point is three letters, OTD. What does that mean? Well, if you spend time on the internet, especially on social media, you may see, say, C, hashtag OTD. What does that mean? On this day. So it's a historical kind of throwback. What happened on this day 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. So for instance, yesterday. Yesterday was April 9th, right? And on that day, on April 9th, 77 years ago, in 1945, in Flossenburg concentration camp, Nazi concentration camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died by hanging at the age of 39. So the Flossenburg concentration camp was liberated actually just two weeks later on April 23rd by Allied forces. So Bonhoeffer was a German, he was a Christian, he was a German theologian, author, seminary professor, and he was a political dissident against the Nazi regime. His books ended up on the banned list. The National German Church capitulated. They endorsed Hitler and the Nazi party. Bonhoeffer and his brothers and sisters in Christ started the Confessing Church and spoke out against the Nazi party because their allegiance was to Jesus Christ. So he was hanged for his faith and for his refusal to endorse the um, Nazi party or just for his refusal to stay quiet in the face of such wicked injustice and cruelty and genocide. Um, the German medical doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's execution described it like this. On the morning of that day, <clears throat> between five and six o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this unusually lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So that was the medical doctor that observed Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's final words were remembered by a Royal Air Force pilot who had been captured, who later 
you know, reported them. His final words, Bonhoeffer's final words were, this is for me the end, the beginning of life. Yes, it is the end, but really it's the beginning. Bonhoeffer loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that we can be justified, right with God, not by our own doing. We can't do enough good works to get into God's good graces. Justified by grace, though he certainly spoke against cheap grace, right? If you know anything about Bonhoeffer, you know he wrote The Cost of Discipleship. So cheap grace where, where it's kind of like a, you know, I, I signed the card and I've got my fire insurance in my pocket and it really doesn't matter how I live. He spoke out against that. But he loved the gospel of grace because we can't make ourselves right with God. We need his grace so that we can be justified and set right, made righteous in God's sight through faith, trusting in Christ because he died in our place on the cross. He takes our sin. We receive his righteousness as a gift. Empty hands of faith. So he loved that gospel of grace. He loved justification by, by faith. And in his book, Ethics, which was actually published posthumously after he died, he had worked on it for, I think, almost a decade, and it wasn't finished, but it did end up getting published after he died. He wrote that justification is God's final word for sinners. You know, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, that never can be overturned. So it's God's final word for sinners. And then he also wrote this. So heaven is torn open above us humans and the joyful message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe. And in believing, I receive Christ. I have everything. I live before God. That's how he lived, and that's how he died. So that was yesterday's OTD on this day. Today, the OTD would be Palm Sunday. Okay, so what happened 2,000 years roughly ago? What is Palm Sunday all about? Matthew 21 recounts it for us. <clears throat> Look at verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So like I said, all four gospel counts have a version of the, what's often called the triumphal entry, right? When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem the week before his death. So he came to Bethany for the Sabbath, which was obviously on Saturday. It started Friday night because as soon as the sun set, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And that was a week before he was crucified because he was crucified on Good Friday. And then he entered Jerusalem on Sunday. 
okay, the day after the Sabbath. So as he drew near, Jesus is obviously heading to the cross. He knew why he came. His disciples and his followers had other expectations. Okay, so Palm Sunday is very much about expectations. So keep that in mind as we walk through this. As it says in Luke 19.11, the disciples, the crowd, the followers, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they knew that one day Messiah was going to come. God was going to visit his people in power. God was going to show up by way of this messianic leader, future king, and set up the kingdom of God. And they thought it would happen literally, physically, finally, when the Messiah came. The Romans would be overthrown because they were under Roman occupation at the time. The Romans would be overthrown. They would no longer exist under the thumb of a powerful foreign ruler. And so the theocratic rule of God would be set up on earth. You know, just like the golden days of King David and King Solomon, it would even be better because this king, he would rule forever. And God's kingdom would come finally and decisively. So there were zealots among the disciples. Simon the zealot. They were ready to fight to bring the kingdom. Obviously, Peter was ready for a fight, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulls out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear, this servant. Do you know why he cut off his ear? He was aiming for the head. Guy went like this. So they had expectations. There were Jewish nationalists who were ready to kill and die to overthrow the Roman occupation and free the people of God. They thought that's, that was God's will. So here Jesus comes, he is the Messiah, and he set his face like flint to Jerusalem, right into the lion's mouth, as it were. The threats and the plots to kill Jesus had grown, and rather than running from them, he headed right into it. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. So previously, when messianic fervor had started to rise, did you, have you noticed as you've read the Gospels that oftentimes Jesus silenced his disciples? You're like, what? Why does he want them to keep quiet? Like, didn't he come to, you know, he's, he's the Messiah, he's here, like he should shout it from the rooftops. Well, you see, it's tied to their expectations. They didn't have the right gospel yet. So for them to be like, proclaiming, oh, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. They're all thinking political, military leader, set up the kingdom now. So Jesus is like, shh, you stop preaching. I'll do the preaching until I reshape the categories. You see? So like, for instance, in Luke 9, verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's with his disciples here. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ, the Messiah of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, let me reshape your expectations. The son of, before you start preaching in my name, let me tell you what I'm here for. So you preach the right message. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And they didn't understand that yet. He also had to withdraw from the crowd more than once so that the fervor would die down. Again, a misguided fervor. For instance, after he fed the 5,000, have you ever noticed, in John chapter 6, okay, so basically everybody know what a Lunchable is? You know, kids, little plastic thing, like Jesus fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable, okay? Ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a Lunchable. And so everybody's just like, wow, who is this? This is the Messiah. And so when the people saw, this is John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Deuteronomy 18, 15 spoke of the prophet, even greater than Moses, who would come and we were to listen to him. So they're referring to that, you know, expectation. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he oftentimes just shushed the messianic fervor because they didn't understand. But now, Palm Sunday, and as he heads into Jerusalem, he's actually welcoming it. He's even encouraging it. He's not hush-hushing the messianic fervor. He's actually feeding it. So as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, what does he do? He sends his disciples ahead for a donkey. This is a supercharged moment. So we're pretty familiar with it. Maybe we can kind of yawn as we read through it. But this was a supercharged moment. They're all thinking, is this the time? Will fire fall from heaven and consume the enemies of God and usher in the forever kingdom we've longed for for so long? Why did the disciples ask to sit at his right and left hand? Because they thought he was going to be king and we want to be in your cabinet. They didn't realize that the cross came before the crown. They wanted to go straight to the crown. Expectations. You can see that's actually where we're headed applicationally. We sometimes want to go right to the cross. We don't want any suffering in this life. But to follow Jesus, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus, right? Okay. So that could seem nuts to us. You know, again, we might not have the same kind of, like, soaked in these Old Testament expectations of the Messiah. And even to think, like, really? You think this guy could set up a forever kingdom? And, you know, like, how? But stop and think for a second. This man had already commanded the wind and the waves to be still, and they obeyed. He healed disease and blindness and deafness, some of it from long distance. He just said the word, and the person was healed. He cast out demons. He set people free from oppression. Again, he multiplied loaves and fishes and fed thousands twice. He raised the dead. In fact, if you look at all the accounts, especially John's account, you see that the raising of Lazarus was right before this. So he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And now he's calling for a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Kings sometimes rode in triumphantly on donkeys. And he says... If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Like, how does he know this? He calls himself the Lord. Caesar called himself Lord. Kaiser Curie, Caesar is Lord. And Jesus says, no, I'm 
I'm actually the Lord. This is subversive, revolutionary talk. So you can imagine the expectations. So look at how the disciples and the crowd of followers responded in verses 6 to 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. He didn't sit on two beasts of burden. He sat on the cloaks on one of the beasts of burden. Okay. Um, Just in case anyone is paying attention and wondered about that. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What is that all about? That is, this is the king that's coming in. This is homage and honor and like rolling out the red carpet. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So we just sung a song. And if if you don't have a background with Christianity, you might go, what in the world are we singing? Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. What in the world are we saying? Hail to the Lord's anointed, the anointed king. You would anoint a king. This is God's king. And he is great David. King David was, you know, great king of Israel. And the promise of his dynasty, a son of David would come one day and his kingdom would last forever. So great David's greater son, the son is even greater than the father, the forefather, David. So Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet. Remember again that expectation of a a greater Moses from Deuteronomy 18.15. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So actually, I think we have it. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. What did the prophet Moses do? He led the people out of Egypt, out from under the thumb of a foreign power. The Exodus was like the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament, right? Will the second Exodus begin? The greater Exodus? Because this is someone greater than Moses. So if anybody's in doubt of, you know, these expectations and the fact that Jesus now is encouraging it rather than hush-hushing it, look at what Matthew says all of this fulfills. Point number two, behold your king. Verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, a way of referring to the people of God, city of God, behold Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a burst, uh, of a burst, of a beast of burden. So that comes from Zechariah 9.9. Okay, again, these are messianic expectations. This is a text that the Jews look to with expectation for it to be fulfilled. So Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's gonna cut off the, the power of the enemy and the oppressor and speak peace to the nations and set up his rule and his kingdom. So do you see this expectation like things are about to get real here? Zechariah 9 is being fulfilled. This is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. This is a living kind of dramatic revelation, presentation of who Jesus is as he gets onto this donkey and begins to ride into Jerusalem. The veil of secrecy is being lifted. He is the Messiah and he's going public with it here. So if you thought all of that was about to happen, <laughs> like how do you think you'd be feeling if you were one of Jesus' disciples? So look at how the disciples in the crowd of followers react. Point number three, blessed is he who comes. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail him. Hosanna in the highest. Russell mentioned this already. Hosanna originally meant save, save me, save us. So for instance, in 2 Samuel 14, 4, we don't have to worry about the context, but there was a woman from Tekoa. She came to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Hoshana ha-melecha. Save me, O king. Hoshana, you can hear it, Hosanna. So, as Russell mentioned again, this is a quotation from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a procession psalm with the king entering into the city and the people responding. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, Psalm 118.24, this is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. So it's a cry for deliverance. It's a cry for salvation. It also, over time, became an acclamation, okay? So think about it. Hosanna in the highest. What does that mean? Save in the highest? What does that even mean? It, it was a cry for salvation, but it also became an acclamation, like, um, you are worthy of praise to the highest places. Like, everyone should praise you. You're worthy of the highest praise. His praise should be sung in the highest places. Okay? His glory should redound to the heavens. Something like that. So it's, an ex it's also an expression of blessing. Praise to the king. So it's praise to the king and it's a plea for blessing. Come and deliver us. And Jesus doesn't hush that. He doesn't refuse this praise. He accepts it. He receives it. So what does it mean for Jesus to accept and receive this praise? This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of all of this messianic expectation. So through this whole event, the triumphal entry, 
Jesus is clearly revealing who he is. He's no longer keeping that on the down low. He's declaring it openly. But even as he accepts their homage and praise as their messianic king, he's going to completely confound their categories regarding why he came and what he's there to do. So point number four, last point, what he came to do. This triumphal procession is unlike any other triumphal procession, okay? So triumphal processions were common in the ancient Near East. Like, for instance, Roman military leaders, after a great military victory, would ride in on their war horses to the equivalent of the Thanksgiving Day Parade. I mean, like, confetti and all, trumpets, captives in tow, plunder on display. Usually the general was dressed almost like a god, and they were hailed because they had triumphed in might over their enemies. Jesus turns this on its head. <laughs> this is the triumphal entry. It did not lead to Jesus' exaltation. It led to his crucifixion. And that's exactly what he intended it to do. And so in, in a sense, yes, we know the end of the story. We know that it was triumphal, but it was a triumph through defeat. It was exaltation through humiliation and all for us. So look at where the text goes in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. So, you know, the, the pilgrims would come in for the festival, right? Passover was coming, and they wouldn't want to, like, bring their animals all this way to offer sacrifices, so you could buy animals in the temple area, so that wasn't all bad, and even the, the temple tax and so forth was paid in the, in the shekel, and so sometimes you had to change some money and whatever. But the problem was it became more about business, and you can imagine that especially at festival time, some, you know, price gouging could take place and extortion and so forth, taking advantage of the people. So this is where, whoa, 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 this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus rides in and drives out the defilement from the temple, kind of like an exorcism. He's driving out the corruption. It was to be a house of prayer, a place where God's people can meet with him, worship him in the manner he prescribed with the provisions that he provided in order to be able to come into his presence. And instead of a house of prayer to become a den of thieves, you know that's actually a quote from the Old Testament? Jeremiah chapter 7. Do we have that slide? I can't remember if I gave that, but anyway, listen to Jeremiah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were using the temple almost like a talisman. It was like the lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, we've got the temple, we've got the temple, we've got the temple. It doesn't matter how we live. 
because we've always got the temple. So instead of a house of prayer, it actually become a den of thieves. They were idolatrous. They're perpetrating injustice. But hey, they were going to church on Saturday. Sunday for us, you know. So Jeremiah says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, see the idolatry, and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So you know what they were saying back then? God will forgive. That's his job. And they were just going on. Cheap grace, you know, if we talk about Bonhoeffer's language. That's the wrong kind of sanctuary. That's like making the church into a criminal hideout and never calling people to true repentance and change of heart and life. So the church is a hospital for sinners. Everyone can come. We all need God's grace and his mercy, and it's offered to us in Christ, and we can have it. But the church is not to be a hideout for sin. Hospital, yes. Hideout, no. Other ways that we've said this in the past, one of them, the church should be safe for sinners, but not safe for sin. So let me just give one example, because this has been kind of sometimes, uh, well, I would say, depending on where you read and what you listen to, this has been a real issue in the church in America, certainly, and in, in other places globally. Um, this is just one example and we can multiply examples. Um, but I think it's a clear example, and then certainly may it never be the case that it's present here. So we believe in complementarian roles in marriage and in the church. God made men and women different, right? And in marriage, you have headship and helper roles, okay, which is actually supposed to be this beautiful complementarity that's lived out as a dance. It's hard. We need grace to do it. But it actually is a picture of the gospel lived out in marriage, Christ and his church, Ephesians 5, right? Sadly, sometimes in complementarian churches or, you know, churches that have these traditional roles, we believe this wholeheartedly, sometimes it becomes a sanctuary for abusive husbands. And they use submission like a club. That's never what headship is intended to be. Headship is burden bearing for the sake of the well-being of wife and family. It is not a right to be exercised but a burden to be borne and something to be lived out sacrificially for the well-being and good of others in your home and beyond. So how ugly, how wrong it would be under the, the guise of headship and helper 
it would be a hideout for abusers. Jesus would come in and say, no, like upend the table. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so that's one example. And let's not just say, yeah, in the church, that's an issue. Hey, if that's present here, we need to deal with that. Any husbands need to repent? Hey, come talk to me. If wives are fearful, again, come talk to us. Let's deal with these things. But again, that's one illustration, okay? We could multiply those examples, but the big picture is the temple, the, the place where we meet with God, and you know, at this point, the church should not be a hideout for spiritual criminals, <laughs> you know, like where we go through the motions and, you know, like go to church faithfully, but we're actually spending the rest of the week doing injustice and, you know, extorting people and, and doing injustice and all of that. So Jesus comes and he cleans house. So he comes, triumphal entry, and then he goes right to the temple to cleanse it. Interesting juxtapositions going on here. Interesting things that are laid side by side. Here is the king coming, yet his triumphal entry is pretty anticlimactic, you could say. He's a man of peace. He's not coming to destroy his enemies, the Roman occupation, enemies of the Jews. He's not bringing a military advance to set up his kingdom by force. He is the king of peace, coming to make peace with the gospel of peace. And yet, he enters the temple and upends tables to cleanse it of idolatry and hypocrisy and injustice. And then, look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Whoa! Again, we just go, we read right by that because we, we've, you know, Jesus healed people and that's great. Their expectation, like, something greater than the temple is here. Because these people, the blind, the lame, they would be excluded from drawing near to God. They were ceremonially unclean. And if you came in contact with them, you would be defiled. But here Jesus, instead of being defiled, cleanses and heals and restores them. So, what is he coming to do? Not to set up the literal kingdom and throw down the Romans. He's coming to heal and restore and bring the outcast in. So, boy, if you were blind and lame, you'd be like, this is great. <laughs> but not everybody was saying, this is great. Look at verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, do you remember that word? Marvelous, wonderful things, Psalm 118. I, we're actually not going to have time to kind of look at that, but the word wonderful or marvelous shows up multiple times in this passage, and it's echoing back to Psalm 118. Okay. The wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the king of kings. The chief priests and scribes were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Which would be like a total, you know, offensive statement to those who 
knew the Torah backwards and forwards. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? It's a quote from Psalm 8. And leaving them, he went out to the city, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Psalm 8 was a passage of praise to God and Jesus received this praise from the children. So what's happening is here, the, the humble understand and praise Jesus. The needy, the vulnerable, the weak, they understand and they praise Jesus, the true Messiah, God with us, Emmanuel. The proud moralists, the religionists, they're indignant and offended at Jesus. So Jesus came not to free his people from Roman oppression. He came to free all peoples from sin's oppression. Look back at Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. How's he going to do that? He's going to die so that the offer of peace can be made to all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. I'm coming for all peoples. And his rule as individual hearts bow to the king of kings and lord of lords, his rule shall be from sea to sea. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set free, set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. <laughs> Here is the blood of the new covenant. What did Jesus come to do? To cleanse the temple, to clean house, to heal and bring in the nations by the blood of the new covenant. So donkeys were ridden sometimes by kings, but only during times of peace. A king riding on a donkey into a hostile environment was unique. <laughs> that was unexpected. You'd expect him to come on a war horse. So this is obviously a man of peace. In fact, he's the prince of peace, we know. He's not a leader of a coup or a revolution or a, a revolt, at least against Rome. What does this mean as he enters Jerusalem? He didn't come the first time to judge and destroy. He came to be judged, to die, to become the prince of peace so that he could offer the gospel of peace, to make peace. We can have peace with God, the cross before the crown. So John 3.16 is so famous, maybe the most famous Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not per perish but have everlasting life. The very next verse says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His first coming was not for condemnation. It was for salvation and an offer of peace for all who would trust in Jesus. Okay, so what? Just an OTD on this day history lesson? No. Think of the expectations the disciples and the crowd had. They thought they wanted, they thought that this was what was coming and they wanted a Messiah to come by force and to free them from what they thought was their biggest problem, the Roman oppression. 
but Jesus knew what they and what we really need. There was for them and there is for us an oppression beneath the oppression, a slavery beneath the slavery. The Jews didn't just need delivered from the Romans, although I'm sure that was no fun. The Jews and the Romans and all the peoples, all nations, needed deliverance from the slavery, the oppression of sin. So think about the first exodus. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Track with me here. Here's why Jesus is the greater Moses, greater exodus. Ready? They were brought out of Egypt and delivered circumstantially. They were no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh. They plundered his house. God was with them in the wilderness. Manna, water out of the rock. God was going to take care of them. You know, pillar of fire, pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. They saw all these mighty miracles and this mighty deliverance, you know, the sea parted and all of that, but they soon grumbled in the wilderness and wished they were back under slavery. So they were brought out of slavery, but they were still slaves to sin. The new covenant, the greater exodus with the greater Moses is actually the opposite. He delivers us from slavery to sin. We are delivered, set free spiritually, but not necessarily circumstantially. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that your disability or your disease or your difficult circumstances in your home or work will magically go away. In fact, you may face more suffering as you give your life for others, as you follow Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him and lay down your life for the sake of others. You may also experience persecution and mockery for your faith. Or if you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may die for your faith. But trusting in Jesus for deliverance, the real ultimate deliverance we need is him coming to set us free from our deepest problem, our biggest problem, the oppression beneath the oppression. And if we're set free from the penalty of sin and the enslaving power of sin is broken by his grace, if we have forgiveness of all of our sin, if we have peace with God now and forever, if God is for us now in Christ and not against us, if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, then we are truly free even if we're in a concentration camp in Flossenburg. Even if you're still disabled or diseased or poor or weak or unsuccessful or uncool. The cross before the crown. We follow him in humility. We deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jesus' mission impacts what it means for us to be his disciples, to follow him. So, Bonhoeffer's expectations were shaped by Jesus. When he got arrested because of his faith and resistance and refusal to capitulate to the Nazi ideology, he didn't say, oh, 
what's going on? I didn't sign up for this. I mean, I thought I was signing up for like my best life now. He knew the cross was before the crown. So he lived following Jesus no matter the cost and he died in faith at peace knowing nothing could separate him from Christ. Hear what he said again about justification. (laughs) Being right with God, having reconciled relationship with God, being at peace with God. So heaven is torn open above us humans. And the joyful message of God's salvation is Jesus, in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe, and in believing, I receive Christ. I have everything. He didn't write that in some, like, comfortable ivory tower setting with no suffering. He wrote that under threat of death. I have everything. I live before God. So, church, Brothers and sisters, may we also have our expectations shaped by the real Jesus and follow him, taking up our cross daily in the power that the resounding, wonderful deliverance that's ours in Christ and gives to us until he returns to make all things new. So listen, he came on the donkey to save And this life can be a veil of tears, a valley of tears, and we can go through really hard things just like Bonhoeffer did. But one day, Jesus is coming back, and it's not going to be on a donkey. Revelation 19, he comes on the war horse. So you either bow now in faith and trust him, and you crown him with your crown. I don't want to put this on my own head. I'm not, I don't want my kingdom to come on earth. As Every time I try to run my life, I, I mess it up. I'm not God. I'm not the center of the universe. So you crown him with many crowns. So otherwise, one day you'll be forced to. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But again, we do have the cross But brothers and sisters, the crown is coming. And all oppression and all injustice and all suffering and all pain and everything that's wrong with the world will one day be made right and all things will be made new. So we follow Jesus bearing the cross and one day we will reign with him forever. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please shape our expectations with your truth. And may we not allow anyone or anything else to shape them. I pray that we would see the wonderful, marvelous truth that we can be right with you, that we are now right with you if we're trusting Jesus and that changes everything and, and we have everything. Even as we pilgrimage through the valley of tears until 
you return and set all things right. So please shape our expectations and help us to willingly take up the cross and route to the crown and crown the Lord Jesus with many crowns. In his name, amen.